little bit. So, hi everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Tuesday, February February the twenty first. And I've been looking forward to uh, chatting with this lady for some time. Today we're going to be chatting with Mylene Salabarria, right? I think that's the right. Is that the right? Did I get it yes, right, Mylene? Yes, you I, got it right. <laughs> I got the, the double R there, Salabarria, who uh, happens to be a fellow Cuban. So that uh, is of interest to me as well. And she is the director of community engagement for an organization called Parents Defending Education. This is you know, a topic that interests me a, a great deal because we have four uh, grandchildren, very uh, little grandchildren, they're not in school yet by any means, but they will be in the next two to three years. So this is a topic that interests me a great deal. What is going to happen uh, in, in, in the educational field uh, over the next five to 10 years? So let me say hello to Mylene. How are you, Mylene? I'm very good. Thank you for the invitation, Silvio. It's really a pleasure to be here with you in the show today and be able to talk about these important issues. I really yes. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now, the name Mylene, uh, is that your is that like a a, a short or is that your full name? That's I'm my curious. full name. Full yeah, name. that's my right. full name. Right. Mm -hmm. That is great. Now tell me, you were born in Cuba. Just fill me in. How how did when did you come to the United States and what do you remember of Cuba? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Cuba under Castro. Um, quite a different generational experience than yours when you and your family left. I am the proverbial child of a socialist government control school. I did all my education in Cuba until 2001 when I left under government control, K-12 schools, boarding schools, even when I uh, finished my law school in the University of Havana. I have been in the United States since 2001, first lived in Miami for about five years and they relocated into uh, the Rocky Mountain States through work. And I have been here since then. Right. And uh, when you left Cuba in 2001, you said you were you in law school when you left or had I you did. Yeah, I finished. I graduated in December of 2000 and 21 days after that, exactly when I got my diploma, my transcripts, I left. I never registered with what would have been the equivalent of the board mm -hmm. to practice law here in the United States. In the case of Cuba, it will have been the Ministry of Justice because had I done that, I would have been officially on the government database of professionals and they would have never allowed me to leave the plantation. Right. I, that's right. I always get a kick out of the word Ministry of Justice mm -hmm. when you're talking about a communist country. That's kind of not exactly, uh, I don't know, it just sounds funny, Ministry of Justice. It's the greatest contradiction, yeah, yes, for sure. I, know. I always get a kick out of that. So <laughs> tell me, you, what part of Cuba did you grow up in? I, um, I was born in Havana and uh, grew up like, I would say part of the time in Camagüey and then the rest back in Havana until I left. Okay. Uh, my mom is from Pinal de Rio, very rural uh, areas uh, in Pinal de Rio. And my dad is from Ciego de Avila and the Camagüey area too. They were, you know, always uh, were born and grew up in a small rural towns there. Yes, well, of course, Ciego de Avila and Pinal de Rio quite far apart. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my mother's family is from Ciego de Avila. Oh, there and you go. They, uh, they, they, my mother, my aunt, all of, all of my mother's side of the family is from, from Diego de Avila. And then on my father's side of the family, they're from Sahuala Grande. Mm. And uh, so that, you know, they were not exactly next to each other either. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of met uh, 
by 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 chance. But my uh, family ancestors in in Cebu de Avila actually came there from Asturias. There there was a a sizable Asturian you know community in Cebu de Avila. In fact, as a little boy, my brother and I would walk down the street Marcial Gomez, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And uh, at, at the corner, there was something called Centro Asturiano. Mm-hmm. And I remember that with my brother looking at that. So that that is interesting. Yeah, that's and interesting for sure. It's a small world after all. It is all. a small world. So <laughs> who never know if we start digging. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, my uh, my mother's family may have ever known your father's family because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a small town, actually. It is. A it small is a small town, town for town, sure. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what did your parents do in Cuba? Uh, my dad used to work uh, as a, a mechanical engineer for a construction company, and my mom was always, well, until my grandma's small restaurant in Juan Epina del Rio was expropriated by the government, uh, she used to work in the small family business. After that, then she started to uh, work as a secretary in offices, mm-hmm. and as, that's all they did until I was able to get them out of Cuba. Um, in my story background, is a little bit different from your generation. In my case, I was the one that left first. And then when I became an American citizen, I was able to get my mom and my dad out of Cuba. Obviously, you know, as a senior citizen, pretty right. much. But still, I was able to do that. Yeah, my generation is is the one that, and it was, it, it, you know, it was from the 60s to the late 70s. A lot of people left that way. Mm-hmm. And it was generally the parents going out with their kids. And I you know, we were we were the kids who left Cuba and grew up in the United States uh, type. And there's, you know, so many of them. In fact, uh, one of the most uh, interesting experiences for me is like you're doing a business call or you're talking to somebody and then you find out they're Cuban. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you just sit there and, and you say, oh, my mom's Cuban or I'm Cuban. So uh, we're everywhere, as my mother used to say. Estamos en todos lugares. That's we're, true. We're everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a fun thing. Now, you went to the public schools in Cuba, right? Yes, I did. I mean, that was the only school that was the only option. available then. By the time that I was born, and it's the, the easiest way that I have to explain to people that cannot even remotely relate to that experience, Silvio, is that by the time that I was born, the Cuba that you were born, the Cuba that your parents knew, the Cuba that my parents knew was already gone. It was already lost to communism. So I am that generation that we call, especially at the beginning during the elementary and middle school years, I am the generation that grew up while Cuba was a satellite colony of the Soviet Union. I was the generation that it was only government-controlled schools. It was the schools where we have mandatory Russian classes as part of the curriculum. Um, It was the school where middle and high school was in this boarding system where you are a guardian or a guard of the state in this whole Becas or community school for two weeks and you spend with your parents in your home only two weekends a month. So talk about, you know, devising the the yes. perfect system to brainwash minor children and pull them apart from their family units. Now, I am that, that generation. Yeah, Los Pioneros, is that what they yep. used to call mm-hmm. Los Pioneros? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I have two cousins who stayed in Cuba and uh, probably a little older than you, but nevertheless, they stayed in Cuba. So they told me a lot of these things. You know, when I would speak to them and I, it was always so fascinating for me to speak to any Cuban uh, who left, you know, let's say who was there in the 70s and 80s. I or like you like you did. It was always fascinating for me to learn about 
what they were learning and and what their school was like mm -hmm. and i would i would have to think that having gone through that experience in cuba that this whole question of indoctrination in schools must have been uh something interesting for you to do here in the united states in this organization that you're a part of i'm sure that you saw what is happening in many of our schools and said hey no 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 i saw that movie that's not good Absolutely. So were, were you inspired or at least attracted? you saw that indoctrination in Cuba. Did that make you more interested in doing it up here, too? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a case of where where we have like, you know, this saying in Spanish that, you know, I got blue in my face calling the red flags and not many people, unfortunately, were paying attention. It's definitely it's definitely the same process, the same system, the same goal. I just like, you know, ironically, a joke that the difference is that in here we're doing it or it's happening in English and with Wi-Fi. But the methodology, the process and the end goal is the same. It is removing the focus on the classroom, especially in the K-12 classroom, which, by the way, is what parents defending education focus on, is removing the focus from instruction, proficiency and academics and start all this penetration with all these type of ideologies and political agendas that do not belong in the K-12 classroom. And then incorporating with all that is this constant whispering in our children's ears that your parents are the enemy. You cannot trust them. You need to trust me. I'm the big state and I am going to become your Lord and savior. That's exactly the same thing that happened with my life while attending to school in Cuba all my life until I left. And it's exactly the same thing that is happening in the United States, unfortunately, right yeah, now. Yeah, no, unfortunately. Now, of course, the I think what the saving grace for us here is, number one, organizations like yours, of course, but some other options like homeschooling and uh, obviously private schools, if you can afford it. One of the reasons I support vouchers is because I like to give parents the, the option of getting out of public schools but I don't want to give up on public schools. I want to. I want the public schools to be to go back to what they used to be. When we first came to the United States, the the public schools were different. I mean, it seemed mm -hmm. like the focus. I mean, some of the teachers may have been liberals. I I don't know that, but but it, it never showed up in the class. I mean, the 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 politics of, of the professor or the indoctrination. Now in college, yes, but not in. In, in high school or grade school, there was more of a respect for the student and the idea that, hey, you know, let your father and mother talk to you about that. We're here to teach you how to read and write. And I think that's, for me, uh, the biggest difference, uh, Mylene. It's definitely a, a quite a different picture, what we're seeing nationwide, for sure, Silvio. I mean, granted, in your first topic, when you were talking about the importance of public schools, I mean, we totally agree with that. The, the real true definition of educational freedom needs to include all possible choices that the market can provide because education and family values and family needs and children's needs are not one size fits all. And everybody needs different choices. Sadly, it, it has become a battlefield in the United States 
uh, today to be able to provide that. And definitely the, the, what we're seeing in the K-12 classroom is a multi-layer phenomenon that, like you were saying years ago, when you were going to school, you probably didn't see and has become worse in the last few years. It's actually one of the reasons why Parents Defending Education was uh, founded. We are a nationwide organization that works on education for parents, empowerment and, and resources for parents, and exposing, investigating and exposing the wrongdoings that are happening in public schools nowadays. It's really important to keep that in mind because it has become like the new black. It's just to totally alienate parents from the decision making and the things that are happening in the schools when it's a clear violation of the constitutional protective rights that we have in this country to direct their bringing and education of our children. Right. Um, and that goes beyond the school choice. Then you have the other layer of what is happening with teachers and instructors. And it's a problem that goes back into generations. It goes back to the uh, um, institutions of higher education that are preparing teachers in this country nowadays, which is, by the way, the same phenomenon that we observe in Cuba when Castro took over, is that the College of Educations in the universities in this country, they're not preparing educators anymore. They are preparing activist teachers. And this is the result, the trickling phenomenon or result that we're seeing in our K-12 classrooms now, right, right now. And sadly, our kids are the ones that are paying the highest price because they're not receiving the academic instruction that they're going to need to be productive members of our society in the future. You, no, you're exactly right. I, I mean, it's incredible hearing you talk. It's like almost like you're reading my mind because that's exactly how how um, how I feel. And, and you know, it, it, it's just amazing to me that I remember talking to my father uh, and we would talk about Cuban history. And then I would talk to people mm -hmm. about the Cuban history they were learning in Cuba. And it was like two different books. Mm -hmm. It was like two entirely different things. They had totally rewritten it. And I agree with you that there's, there's too many activist teachers. I mean, I follow some of the things that you put on tweet and some of the other things that some of the other organizations and the stuff that they're learning in school. It's like, where did that come from? What, you know, why should I have a five or six year old child, for example, or even eight or nine be exposed to drag queens, for example? What is the point of that? I mean, why, why would we be bringing that into a a school that has no place in the school whatsoever. I mean, if you want to talk about stuff like that in college or sex education in a junior high school, well, okay, that's a little different. But when we're talking about five or six-year-old kids, I mean, it's none of their business for the school system to to get into what these kids are, are learning. That's what the parents are for. But I will tell you, I will tell you this, that, you know, I was having a debate here recently on on Telemundo with uh, with a Democrat and we were talking about school vouchers. And I said, uh, if you want to see the, the school voucher movement grow, keep doing this in your schools. Because this is the reason parents are looking for alternatives. It's not that they hate public school teachers. I have friends of mine who are public school teachers, some of them retired, who are absolutely shocked by the stuff that the schools are are teaching. Now, here in Texas, we've, we've taken a lot of measures. Uh, the governor has signed a bunch of laws that make it more difficult to do that to do that here. But I, I look at the, the production of public schools across the country, Mylene, and I see, you know, I see schools that, that are graduating kids who can't read and write. They can't do math. Mm -hmm. Well, if they're failing to do that, my goodness, what are they doing? 
So they you know. are, well, yeah, they're completely neg neglecting their main role. That's for sure. And um, this is something that we're hearing and we're learning over these years working with parents and parents groups nationwide uh, from every type of a school district, every grade, every parent, every family from any background is that the school lockdowns and the whole disaster of COVID was the silver lining that finally made parents and families totally open their eyes as to what was really happening in the K-12 classroom and what was really being taught to the kids. And it's like the greatest irony, uh, Silvia, like you were saying, we are so keen and so obsessed with teaching elementary school kids and kindergartners 27 different pronouns that they won't be able to read because they cannot do basic reading, writing, and math at grade level. The fact that you have really important and you know great renowned colleges and universities in this country that their first years the students need to take remedial classes in reading writing and math is shameful it's shameful and and it tells you again the importance and how crucial is that the k-12 classroom go back to focus on academics that's your job if you're not doing it the whole transparency question becomes atomic and the other thing is that you are totally misusing and wasting taxpayers monies that are paying for that for you to do one job and you're completely neglecting it and putting the priority into something else that is not what the children need in these years of their you know educational and formational years that's right and i i always say to people you know the kids in japan the kids in china the kids that we're going to be competing with mm -hmm in an international economy, they're learning how to become engineers. And we're teaching our kids. Now, this is another thing that bothers me a lot. We're teaching our kids to hate their country. And that really bothers me because we're, you know, we, we're teaching them that the United States, I mean, it's like we, we take all the bad things and we tell them that. You know, we, we talk about the story of segregation or discrimination. Okay, nobody denies that it happened. When I went to school here, they told me that George Washington was a slave owner. They didn't, they were not hiding that from me, mm -hmm. but they didn't, that wasn't the only thing they talked to us. They talked to us about, they talked to us about how, what a great man he was and some of the other things that he had done. You know, Elon Musk, you know, the fellow who I think he's, he's running Twitter. I know he's doing so many things. I'm mm -hmm. not sure what he does, but mm -hmm. uh, I think he runs Twitter. He said something the other day that he was talking to a, like a bunch of 14 and 15 year old kids. And the only thing they knew about George Washington was that George Washington was a slaveholder. Well, oh, yeah. if that's all you know about George Washington, your teachers are doing a le really lousy job of, of teaching you. Now, let me, because we can talk so long and we only have so much time, but uh, how, oh, let's say that I'm a parent in a school and I see stuff like this happening. Uh, I call your organization or, or is that how it works? You, you yes. have a local chapter? We I guess, do. That... We are not a chapter organization. We are like a membership nationwide group that works with parents, uh, taxpayers, community members, grandparents, uh, education advocates all over the country. Um, the main hub that we use uh, to get in contact with families and parents, it's our website, uh, defendined.org. In there, we have our contact email information, and we also have an anonymous tip line where anyone can submit 
uh, for us, leads or, uh, you know, incident reports that then we thoroughly investigate and depending on what we find, then we post what we call dispatches, which is like a mini press release uh, that gets shared with the community, shared with the media. And those are many of the things that you are able to see on our website. Like you were talking about the curriculum now. Those are the investigations that we have seen, for, uh, we have posted posted, for example, on the Black Ma uh, Life Matters Week and how uh, they're colluding with all these ethnic studies to, for, to go back to, to your example, whitewash the, uh, the part of the American history, uh, the anti-Semitic uh, guided curriculum. That's where we also have the database, for example, that we published at the end of last year of all the school districts in the country that have in place, have approved and have in place and are actually implementing um, transgender policies that rely, their number one point is to alienate parents, to keep parents in the dark when issues like this come up in the schools. So I would say that, yes, the website and contacting us over there uh, would, meet, would be the first step to get in touch with anybody from, from our team. Obviously, our social media, Parents Defending Education, and our YouTube channel is the one that also we use as the hub for all the video trainings, webinars, special interviews, and everything that is done in, done in video. Uh, all of them can be found in YouTube under Parents Defending Education as well. Very good. Now, how active, and I, I assume that you're a nonpartisan organization, mm -hmm. uh, so you, you don't want to be supporting publicly one party or another, but how active are you at election time and at least supporting candidates who who understand these issues and are willing to work with you like in school boards? We've had a, here in the Texas area, there has been a tremendous awakening Mm -hmm. uh, in school boards, the number of parents who got very active in school boards here in the last couple of years has been tremendous. And they've taken over many school boards mm -hmm. and have brought about some changes. So how how active politically is your organization without necessarily being Democrat or Republican? Yeah, we are definitely a nonpartisan grassroots organization. And the way that we have divided is like under the three seat team, we focus on everything that has to do investigation, uh, presentations for parents, for parent groups, empowerment resources, translated into several languages. And then we recently launched PDE Action, which is the C4 team that works, uh, sharing resources like uh, trainings for people that or parents that want to run for school board, model legislation to share with your uh, elected officials, and everything that has to do more with that part that has uh, to do with the elections. But yeah, as an organization, we don't endorse candidates or anything, anybody from any political party. We do encourage on both sides, parents, families, and ed advocates to pay attention to what is happening in the local school districts and to get involved. Because at the end of the day, it's our kids in the classrooms, the ones that are gonna pay the ultimate price of whoever gets to make those decisions for them. Right. You know, it's funny. I've spoken to a lot of teachers who are very frustrated about this because they feel that they're being forced to teach things they don't even believe. And uh, so that that's another another opportunity. But I, I'm really happy that there are people like you who are, as they say, you know, doing stuff like this, because the, the country desperately needs to, to have a conversation. You mentioned COVID. You're exactly right. COVID is what opened the curtain, if you will, mm -hmm. to what was being taught in the schools. So that may have been a blessing in disguise, you know, to have had to have had COVID, but there's so much work that has to be done. And I see, I mean, I just see it here locally, the number of parents 
attending these school board mm-hmm. meetings and talking and speaking and saying, hey, these are my kids. But there's another reality, too, that is very sad, and that is a very large number of kids in our society today are not growing up with full families. So they may not be getting that family protection that some of the or parental protection that some of the other kids are getting, Mylene. Yeah, and that's that's a whole topic for a whole different conversation because obviously it's not by design. Uh, but definitely, it, it, yeah, it is important to get involved, and I think that that's the crucial thing that you, you were see, you were saying before. Is like the whole COVID lockdowns open our eyes, but we need to keep paying attention to what's happening. We need to keep being involved because. It's, it's the least that we can do. We owe it to our kids. And it really doesn't matter if you're somebody like yours or my background or somebody that has been for generations in the United States. At the end, it comes down to whose children are they? And I know it. sometimes it's like, I don't know, depressing in a sense for many moms and dads that I am in contact with constantly, that they feel that they're having, they're going to battle against this huge dragon that they they do not understand how they work. They feel they, you know, that they are outnumbered. And the reason is that it really doesn't matter what names or labels they put on us. We're not domestic terrorists. We're not dissenters. We are the parents and we're not going to go anywhere. And the sooner the powers that be realize that, the sooner that everybody gets mobilized to, again, stand up and defend those constitutional protected parental rights that I was mentioning earlier, the better off our kids will be when it comes to the end result of their entire academic journey in our public schools. Absolutely. I have to tell you that I have to close with a little story. And this is not about your group. I think it was one of the other groups that, who was a guest. One of, somebody from one of, your, one of these groups was a guest on, on the Joey Reid show here recently mm-hmm. on MSNBC. You may be familiar with the clip. He's the president of, yeah, the president of Mom for Liberty, Tiffany. Okay, that's, that's the, yeah, that's the lady who it was. And uh, they're talking about a particular book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Joey Reid says, what expertise do you have? to talk about this. And I mean, what an outrageous question. She's the mother. Mm-hmm. What other expertise do you need? That's all I the mean, credentials that we yes. need. I mean, if a mother, I mean, if, if you don't get expertise as a mother to care about your kid's education, I mean, what does she need? A PhD in being a mother? I mean, just a mother uh, alone. And and I thought that that question and the way she answered it so well mm-hmm. was just, I mean, it was like, I really felt that in in a, in a very small ten second moment that it captured the whole argument. Yes, uh, it did. that you know the parents are the ones who who have the expertise. They're the parents. They're the ones who but care if, about. If you think about it, and just like a closing example too, because I know that we're running out of time. Think about about two years ago, it was actually parents defending education, the one that it, uh, exposed the the so called memo. Uh, asking to, you know, investigate and prosecute parents as domestic terrorists. And that has become our line. It's like, no, we're not dissenters. We're not troublemakers. We are not the ones, you know, being uh, mischievous or or misbehaving, I should quote. That was the word, misbehaving in school board meetings. We are the parents and we have a right to voice our concerns and we have a right to raise and educate our children the way that we see fit. Right. If nothing else, the parents are paying the taxes. I mean, if you just look at it from an economic standpoint, the parents are the ones who are paying the taxes, so they should have some input 
That, to, definitely. And that's and, why the transparency component is so clear, too. It really doesn't matter if our kids already graduated from the school system and they move on. We are already paying taxes. We are already funding right. all these, uh, all these, you know, disastrous policies that we don't agree with. Right. And it should not be like that. And again, in some in someone like my case or something similar to me, it would be like the greatest irony that I you know, I started my life in this country 22 years ago with two suitcases and $200 in my pocket for my American board children to have a different education, a different opportunity, a different ch chance in life for them to end up in the same disaster I have I to escape from. It doesn't make any sense. And I am just one example. That's why so many moms and dads work with, with us. And it's truly the vision that moves us as an organization. It's like this is the hill where we will happily die on. Right. No, it's funny you were mentioning that, that it's ironic because I was thinking exactly the same thing. Who would have believed that we come to the United States, we mm -hmm. came here looking for freedom and, and we're, we're seeing this kind of indoctrination. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I know exactly what, how you feel about that. Well, let me, let me mm -hmm. thank you so much for giving us your time. I know you're very busy and I want to uh, say thank you on behalf, I'm sure, of many parents who support your work. I love the, the stuff that you print on on, is it X or Tweet? What is it called these days? X? I call them both. I feel yeah, that right. my brain is still in transition process with yeah. the names. <laughs> right. So I call it, I still call it Twitter, but I, I love the things you post on there. And uh, not only that, but as a fellow Cuban, I'm very proud of the work you do and Thank everything you. That, that you do. And I want to wish you the very best uh, Thank you. in your work. And please say hello to all the other ladies and gentlemen who mm -hmm. are doing this on your side. And tell them that uh, there's a lot of grateful parents. They may not hear from all of them, but I guarantee you that there's a lot of grateful parents who really like the fact that people like you are standing up for them. So have a wonderful day, and thank, thank you so you. much for being a part of this. Thank you so much, Mylene. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, that's uh, Mylene Sala Salavarria. Now I can say that, Salavarria. And she is the Director of Community Engagement at Parents Defending Education. Uh, an organization. She mentioned you can go to their website. I'm sure some of you have already done that. But this is a very important battle that we're fighting. It's for our kids, uh, for our kids. And uh, the, you know, the parents who are involved, keep it up. And again, congratulations to Mylene and all the other people and her group uh, for fighting this battle. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye, everybody.